0: Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Amy. And I'm Hannah. And thanks for joining us for the latest episode of the Cicerone podcast, which this week features highlights from our recent December Cicerone Live event. We had the pleasure of hosting Alan Hinks to talk about his mountaineering achievements of climbing all 14 8,000 metre peaks, which is documented in his book, 8,000
1: metres, climbing the world's highest mountains. Alan Hinks is an accomplished cameraman and documentary maker, photographer, motivational speaker, environmentalist and mountain guide. He is the first Briton to climb all 14 of the world's 8,000 metre mountains. He began his mountaineering career whilst at North Allerton Grammar School, North Yorkshire. He progressed to the Alps with a sense of many difficult mountains, including the notorious North Face of the Eiger, eventually graduating to the Himalaya. He completed his final 8,000 metre peak in 2005. Alan was awarded the OBE in the 2006 New Year's Honours and is an honorary citizen of his hometown, North Allerton. He is involved in charitable work for WaterAid, the Cystic Fibrosis Trust, Duke of Edinburgh's award, and Mountain Rescue. He works closely with the British Mountaineering Council. Alan lives in North Yorkshire and enjoys being in the hills, rock climbing and fell walking. You will regularly see him in the Lake District and Yorkshire, tramping the fells and moors or clinging to a rock face.
0: So we're recording this intro immediately after our event with Alan, which you're about to hear highlights from. Um, Hannah, you were watching while collecting questions and
1: running the kind of technical side of things. What did you think? Wow, that was great. Doesn't he just come across like just such a nice, normal... Downsworth guy who is just passionate about being in the mountains
0: and I think it really came across that you know so he climbed all these 14 8000ers and then actually he can still enjoy going out in the Lake District and going out in Yorkshire and just enjoying the mountains and one of the things that I asked him at the end was whether
1: mountains are kind of in his soul and I thought his reply to that was really nice. That gave me chills a little bit when he said that mountains were in his soul because I think that a lot of our listeners and me and probably you feel that the outdoors is in our soul in some way and we just feel better from having got our fix in the way that Alan puts it and you know he was saying that he can be at Rosebury Topping which I know is one of his favourite mountains and he just feels better just from being outside. He doesn't need to be beating a world record or being on an 8,000 metre peak. He just wants to be outdoors doing doing what he loves. And that was really nice to hear that you don't have to be some sort of hero. You can just go up your local hill and and feel the benefit of that.
0: And as well, this event, we had so many lovely comments from people watching saying, lovely things about Alan um, and how he'd inspired them but as you've said he's a very modest down-to-earth guy and he's done this amazing
1: achievement and yet you never get the sense that he's boasting about it. His sense of humour is very Yorkshire. I think it's quite a particular sense of humour and I don't know how that comes across with the the listeners because occasionally he does make a joke and he talks about his advice being to people don't bother doing the 8,000 metre peaks. And you can see a little glint in his eye when you watch the video that he's obviously joking and it's one of the best experiences of his life, but he will make a joke out of that incredible achievement and make light of the fact that it was so risky and that there was so many people have died making attempts on the same mountains. And yeah, it was just it, quite overwhelming to listen to mm. him talk about that. And one of our
0: questions from the audience was about the people he's lost and I think that was a really like touching moment where he was answering that question and talking about people and I almost didn't want to ask it because I wasn't sure whether you know it's obviously like a horrible thing to bring up and talk about especially on a live event but yeah I thought his answer was really quite moving
1: um, and poignant really yeah it was and I think he said something like, the loss never goes away. Every time he goes up one of the 8,000 metre peaks, he's aware that he might be adding to the list of people that haven't made it. And I think that shows a strength of character and a true passion for mountaineering. And I think he'd put his resilience
0: down to just like true Yorkshire grit. But I think it is more than that. I think he does have something within him that keeps him going. And I think that comes across in his book,
1: perhaps more than in... The event that we've done. Yeah and how many times he tried to to do some of the ascents I think was quite fascinating because you know a lesser person would have just gone oh that's not for me but he, he kept on trying and that was incredible to listen to.
0: Yeah well like going back to K2 three times when it is such a dangerous and notoriously dangerous mountain there's got to be something within you that drives you to do that and keeps you going with all the risk. But I think he's also very responsible with how he talks about risk, and kind of making those judgment calls. And at what point do you actually turn back and, you know, don't give in to summit fever and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, one of the questions we didn't get round to asking was about the risk that the porters and the shoppers take. And it would have been really interesting to hear his thoughts on that. It's always a struggle, isn't it? Hannah
0: collects the questions and then I ask them to our guest and it's always hard like going through all the questions trying to ask as many as we can within the time because there's never enough time to get through them and we could probably do 2 hour long events really to get through everything but yeah it would've been really nice to hear his answer on that
1: it's just really hard when you've got some incredible people and you've got by the time we've done the intro and and stuff we've got 45 minutes of talking to people And well, like you just said, we could be there for three hours if we wanted to. And trying to get them to tell all about their life in such a short amount of time is really tricky.
0: And it was really nice as well to speak to Alan about his photography and kind of how that's changed over the years and how it was only on his final ascent that he actually used a digital camera and that up until that point, it was all on film. And if you get Alan's book... You'll be able to see loads of those amazing photos and see
1: all of that alongside his brilliant mountaineering stories. Yeah. Ima- imagine doing something like an 8,000 meter peak and then having really rubbish grainy pictures of it. You'd be gutted. <laughs> I would want really like professional quality shots if I like did a photo- something that hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it was wonderful to speak to Alan and he pretty much invited himself back. So it looks like we'll be lucky enough to have him back sometime next year. So that'll be really good. So Alan, thank you so much for joining
0: us. From all of your mountaineering achievements, you clearly love climbing and mountaineering so much and feel a real drive to do it. But what made you start climbing in the first place?
2: I'm asked that a lot. Some people like tennis, some like footy, I guess some like fishing. And It was just climbing for me. Well, hill-walking and mountaineering, I was just drawn to the hills. I always was, as a little lad, I always wanted to uh, go into the hills. You know, on family drives out into the countryside, I would see people in the hills. Anyway, the first chance I got was when I was at school at North Allerton Grammar School and teachers took me out. and It was just for me. I wasn't put off by the inclement weather. I just loved it.
0: Reading your book, it does feel like a natural progression to go from, you know, climbing at grammar school to then being in the Lake District to Scotland in winter and then Alpine North Faces and then, you know, eventually to the Himalayas. Was it just a case of testing that next limit each time?
2: Yeah, I suppose uh, maybe because I'm a bit older, I don't know. I served in a, a traditional apprenticeship, as they say, you know, starting in Britain, hill walking, but comforting the whole of mountaineering. And I remember going in the library in the grammar school and getting a book called Mountaineering by Alan Blackshaw. And it started with how to walk, how, how you walk, how you play to your feet. And I'll never forget that. And that book progresses. It was nicknamed the Bible. That book progresses right through the Himalayan stuff. So Mountaineering encompasses everything, you know, from rambling, which is the rambler's right through to hardcore mountaineering and it's interesting if anyone can get that book there is an art to walking if you're going on long walks you do want to conserve your energy and walk in a in an energy efficient way obviously if you want to burn out you go on a fell run or even on your walk you could walk on your tiptoes and burn yourself out but you should look forward and place your feet and i have to admit you know i can look at myself now and that sometimes other people have looked at me and said I seem to know what I'm doing even walking but even walking I am aware now as an experienced mountaineer and walker that I can walk far more efficiently than other people.
0: I did think it was interesting in your book that you talk about how you find that you were much quicker on descents than a lot of other people yeah I mean the 8,000 meters are a major challenge and you say in your preface that you didn't initially set out to climb them all but you just you wanted to climb some of the world's most challenging mountains but when did climbing all 14 become something that you wanted to do?
2: I guess when I'd got eight of them done I realised I was more than halfway there was only six left and at that point there was still only about five people maybe six people on the planet that had done all 14 and I'd done the highest Everest and i had done the hardest K2 turned out that none of them are easy and Kangchenjunga is was my last The third ice is just as difficult if not more difficult than k2 anyway i've got eight of them. that's when i decided to do them all and i thought i might be in the top 10 as it happens i was the 13th but one person had already been killed so i was 12th when i did it or, or there was only 12 of us should i say when i did it which is the same number of people that stood on the moon which is what i sort of banded about but there's a couple of dozen or more maybe doing it now i've never kept track maybe 30 people done all 14 yeah
0: yeah I mean you mentioned K2 there and you first saw that from Broad Peak and then attempted it three times before your successful summit in 1995. What is it or what was it about K2 that just fascinated you so much and drew you
2: back each time? Yeah I suppose as a mountaineer you know and, and a climber i aspire to things like the north face of the Iger that's a fabulous mountain to look at is the Iger and the north face is a challenge so I'd heard about K2 and that it was so gnarly and dangerous and not many people have climbed it. You know, it's much more worthy than Everest. It's not much lower than Everest. I think K2 still only had about 300%, maybe 90 deaths, whereas Everest has probably had getting on for 1,000 a cent. Everest maybe getting on that way, and it's maybe had a couple of 100 deaths. But anyway, yeah, sure enough, when I saw K2, it just impresses. Just like the North Face does, just like the Matterhorn does above Zermatt, just like Rosebery Topping does. Just like Stat Polly in Northern Scotland, you know, it really is impressive, it's K2. And you just look at it and think as a mountain, here. I've got to climb that. A bit of cognitive dissonance without me realising it. When I was younger and I first saw it, I just thought, I wanna climb it. And then yeah, I dedicated, donated three years of my life to that mountain. I had three attempts on it over three years and finally did it. In the year I did it, there was only five of us that climbed it. I got to the top alone. My climbing partners dropped out solo to the top and I got to the top on the same day two Pakistanis and two Dutch people so five had the summit didn't survive but um eight that were killed that year 1995 five. yeah so pretty it really is the savage mountain K2. And
0: if you hadn't climbed K2 and Everest early on in your 8,000 meters do you think you would have gone on to do the rest?
2: I think so yeah yeah I got headhunted to climb Everest after K2 because so I was making documentaries and I Made about 13 was actually, you know, filmed on the top of K2, so I guess I could film on the highest mountain in the world. I could film on Everest. So I got head hunted to a film on an attempt by Brian Blessed on Everest uh, and, and did a lot of filming on the film that's called Summit Fever. I have to say, I wasn't particularly phased by Everest. I thought, well, if I've done K2, I can do Everest. You know, it was a bit like, you know, if you're in the north, 30th, there's various other things you can do in the Alps, you know, so I wasn't particularly out in my comfort zone and Everest, believe it or not, I know that sounds a bit much, uh, but it, it shouldn't be underestimated in any great, you know, people say, oh, every man and his dog can climb it now and you pay your money and you try and climb it. That's not true. You've got sixty or £100,000, you want to go and have a go at Everest, go and have a go and see if you can get up it. Yes, you might. Yes, you see queues of 200 people there, but that's just on one day. The next day there might only be 20 and the day after that there might be two and the day after that none. It still is a difficult, dangerous mountain. Most people go there, don't climb it. So I always tell people, by the way, I've got 10 fingers, look, and 10 toes. And I always say to people, some will have heard this before, that means I've got uh, 21 sticky outfits. 10 fingers and 10 toes make 21 sticky outfits, which is very important to keep all your sticky outfits and not get frostbite. No mountain's worth a digit. But I also say no mountain's worth a life. Coming back's a success and the summit is only a bonus.
0: I was going to ask about that later, actually, but do you think you were just lucky?
2: Well, there is a certain amount of luck, but I definitely think, you know, I was always prepared to back off and a more than one goat mountain, you know, no mountains worth of life. But I definitely pushed the envelope a lot. You've only got to read some of the, read the fourteen chapters about the fourteen mountains, you know, in in the book, you know, and I definitely had a, quite a few close shares. So you do need a bit of luck, for sure, I'll say that, but you can make your own luck. And, you know, and I was always prepared to back off and wait till I felt the weather was right, the conditions were right, and I felt right. Whereas a lot of people now, they'll, you know, get the weather forecast, you know, sent into them on the satellite phones and the satellite faxes or the satellite internet now. And they'll just follow that without thinking about what the conditions are like, not just the weather, the conditions. Is it going to avalanche? Is there going to be rockfall? Or what they feel like? You've got to have a sense. There was a lot of that, but yeah, I can't. You know, there's always looking everything in life, isn't there? You know, you'd be driving along, minding your own business, and a an article crashing into you, you know, you're unlucky, you know. So you've always got to have a bit of luck, yeah.
0: And I suppose talking about conditions, and uh, it'd be great to talk about the realities of an expedition now, which you explore in your book for each of these different expeditions you did for each mountain. And I suppose each expedition will have its own particular challenges. But was there one thing that you always found most difficult or that you always were very conscious of being aware of?
2: I guess avalanches on these big mountains and the weather, you know, getting stuck out on them. You know, I did did try and solo a couple of them. I did solo climb, you know, without one of them, particularly Cashing Room 2. I did totally alone and I was going to do some of the others, but that's a bit gnarly solo climbing. You can fall through bridges and crevasses and if you go metres, you're going to be dead like you know. Yeah, you've always got to be aware, I guess, going up and down the mountain acclimatising. Because you arrive at base camp and then it takes you a month to acclimatise, going higher and higher on the mountain, back to base camp. Every time you go up the mountain, you're generally in the exposed to avalanche, which is a bit like being exposed to shellfire or mortar fire in combat. And it does wear you down eventually, yeah. so you've got to try and, you know, keep your spirits up and be resilient and all that.
0: And how did you do that? How did you keep your spirits up? What sort of things did you think about to stay motivated?
2: I guess it's in me, it's where I wanted to be, you know, towards the end on my last few 8,000ers, you know, and I had three or four left, and I remember I was acutely aware that I could get killed by then, you know. um, So there was definitely cognitive dissonance there, which I mentioned in my book. And some of my friends would, you know, be flipping and saying, you know, don't you, like, get worried about going on these expeditions? Don't you realise most people get killed? And most people that try and do all 14, again, this sounds like I'm bull pooing it up, most people that die and do all 14 don't do it. The reason they don't do it is because they get killed or they stop with 10 or 11 and live happily or possibly unhappily ever after. So I was acutely aware I could get killed, but it was where I wanted to be. I'd get to the base camp on my 12th, which was Annapurna, which is only when I got there, it only had 100 ascents Annapurna and 60 deaths. So I made made it 101 ascents, where well, it was maybe roughly 100 ascents it was. I think, I guess. And then my 13th was Dalagiri and I did that on my first attempt and then my last was Kanch but, and I'd been to Kanch a couple of times before but even when I got on all of those last three and I got to base camp I didn't think oh and I might get killed I, no it's where I wanted to be even on Kanch and Junger on my 14th final 8000 which was my 27th attempt on all of them it was where I wanted to be I was in my comfort zone to a certain extent but as soon as I'd finished my last 8000 at Kanch I got on the satellite phone told Fiona my daughter I'm safe rang up sponsors and a friend in Kathmandu who helped me by getting a heli to, to get me out I had to go down to a lower altitude for the helicopter and then back to Kathmandu and that was it I felt free I felt free I didn't have to go back to an eight thousand or again although I have I've been back to been. no I was never I was always happy being there even though I was in the back of my mind in the little box there I knew there was a chance I could get the chop a lot of risk I was aware of that I should say on. Cancer, on Certainly on Dalagiri, my 13th, I was acutely aware that I'd accepted what I thought was a 10% chance of getting killed. There was a very avalanche-prone slope, wind slab slope near the summit, and I stopped. And, and I thought, this is my 13th 8,000. I stopped with my mate, Passang. I said to Passang, I don't think we can go on, mate. This is like a 50% chance, I think, this slope's going to avalanche. we 4,000 metres to our death slope, And I thought, if I go all the way down, I could get killed descending dangerous and then i'll have to come all the way back up to this point in weeks time when i think the avalanche potential might have settled down a bit i could get killed going up to that point through rockfall or anything so i thought you know what maybe you should just push a bit harder so putting a long story short i dug a little bit in the slope assessed the avalanche potential and i thought it was a 10 percent chance it was fine i said to Patang, come on we're gonna have to go on he just well, i said he, you know, he didn't seem to well he didn't seem to mind he took my judgment And we went on to the summit, and then we had to cross. And I did a little piece of camera for the documentary filming that. And I remember filming myself and looking back at the slope. And even on the the documentary, and and I'd say, I'm crapping myself. I'm going across this slope, and I think I'll have a 10% chance of the slide. And then I had to cross that slope again, going back after passing a dead body. And I got to base camp, and I was completely wiped out. And it took me a while to realise why I was wiped out, because I'd accepted Not happily, but I was prepared to accept a 10% chance of getting killed. I'm not 13, 8, 000, which is a bit of luck. It was 10%, could have been 50%, could have been 1%. I had a, I'd assessed it as 10% and, and accepted that. Uh, I don't think I'll ever really Yeah, do that and
0: I, I suppose making those judgment calls <clears throat> comes from, I suppose, years of experience, and there were many occasions where you did turn back and not go for the summit, and you know, like, summit fever is such a, a thing, isn't it? And Yeah. How did summit you talk
2: about of that? I wouldn't say it was summit fever. I had, but I did push the envelope more. If I was prepared to accept a 10% chance of getting killed on my 13 to 8,000, I probably wouldn't have done that earlier in my career. So, so I, don't, I wouldn't call it summit fever, but for some reason I thought, oh, come on. But it is madness, if you think of it, to accept to a accept 10% chance of getting killed. But that's what people do sometimes in life. The only analogy you can make are in combat. People accept often they're ordered so they have to accept a 10% chance or more of getting killed in combat but you know those are the sort of analogies you can make maybe but you know in normal life you should never have to accept a 10% chance of getting killed driving along the most dangerous road in your car shouldn't be a 10% chance of getting killed and certainly on any public transport it shouldn't be.
0: How did you feel afterwards after you completed all 14 thousanders?
2: Oh, well, just free, free to do anything I wanted, you know, get back into rock climbing in the late District in Cumbria or North Yorkshire or Scotland or Wales or anywhere, or go to Spain rock climbing or Greece, you know, when it's sunny and wet in Britain. Just free to do anything I want, enjoy my daughter and my grandkids and just get on with my life and, uh, you know, try and live happily ever after shows, just enjoying the hills and things, you know.
1: If you're inspired and want a copy of Alan's book for yourself, head over to the Cicerone website and use the discount code Everest25 at the checkout for 25% off. We hope you enjoy reading 8,000 metres, climbing the world's highest mountains and discovering Alan's mountaineering journey for yourself.
0: When you um, reflect back on your journey, this 18-year journey, what do you wish you'd known at the beginning?
2: I don't know. I mean, things were so different, you know, there wasn't really satellite phones at the beginning to keep in touch. I used to write letters and have a mail runner to send the letter out people would write me letters back. Uh, the first time I had a satellite phone, it was an Inmarsat, and it was the size of a kitchen unit with a big satellite dish. So we had a satellite phone in base camp, but not a lightweight one on the mountain. We had walkie-talkies on the mountain. or believe it or not, as the French say, when you climb them, talkie-walkies, not walkie-talkies. So we had the talkie-walkie, but the technician at base camp Link that into the satellite phone. How easy is it now with a sat phone on a mountain? And uh, but talkie walkie, you have to say over after everything because it's not two way like a telephone. So I said to me, Gran, I'm on the mountain ground, I'm at like you know six and a half thousand, seven thousand meters, right high in a mountain, and I'm on a radio linked in, you know, I'm on a walkie talkie linked in to the telephone. So you'll have to keep saying over. Do you understand what I mean, Gran? Over. And she went, (laughs) blow me over. I'll never forget that. 90-odd-year-old woman soon got on a walkie-talkie through her telephone for the first time. <laughs> anyway, amazing. you just have lightweight mobile phones the size of any phone now. You know, lightweight satellite phones. So that's the difference. But anyway, that was a long-winded answer. Sorry, about it, but I don't know what I'd do, yeah, I really. I don't know what I'd do.
0: No, that's fascinating. I mean, yeah. um, you dedicate, you mentioned your gran and you dedicate the book to her and also to your daughter, Fiona. And she was always your kind of summit flag and um, was a photo of, of her what does fiona think of your mountaineering career i mean what was that like for her
2: well i suppose as she got older into a team i have a little video clip of her on yorkshire telly when she was interviewed once and as she got older i do realize she got more worried and scared and I, could die. I mean most of her life she was as a young girl you know i was away a lot and she but then i spent a lot of time with her when i got back more than most people probably and took her away and things but she obviously realised a bit more as she got older that I could get killed, you know, which must have upset her a bit. I remember when I said I was going back to Everest after I finished all fourteen, she did get a bit a bit upset about that, I think, when I think about it. Yeah. But she was usually relieved when I came back. I remember she got older in her teens and I'd sat like phones. I would ring her and try and talk to her, she'd talk to me as a teenager and, and that. And then when I would ring her up and, you know, she'd want to talk to me, which was great. So anyway, I'll hopefully be seeing her soon. Not seeing her through. Sure few weeks now but you are catching her soon and obviously she's moved on and got children of her own now so I've got grandchildren.
0: And there's some lovely photos at the end of the book of you with your grandchildren in Nepal. Hmm. Um, Yeah those are lovely. You mentioned Everest there and going back to climbing Everest. Are there others that you've wanted to go back to?
2: Yeah, I always say nothing would make me go back to any of those 8,000ers because they're all so dangerous. You can get killed. You know, I'm lucky to be alive. I really am. And as I said before, most people that try and climb all 14 don't because they get killed. So I'm lucky to be alive. So nothing would make me go back to climb any of them again. No, I'm only joking. I always say that. I'm only joking. I, I've been back to, there is only really Everest and possibly you Those are the two None of them are safe. None of them are easy. But I wouldn't go back to K2. I seriously wouldn't go back to K2 for a million quid. I did it for me, not for money. So why go back and get killed? I just couldn't face going back to K2. I could face Everest again, which is which is a bit, against coming dissonance there because obviously I could die on Everest, you know, not only from avalanche, rockfall, the cold. I could die of cerebral pulmonary edema. I acute mountain sickness. It is, I've got older, your blood gets thicker and more viscous at altitude. And there's more chance of you having a thrombosis or a heart attack. And as you get older, as I am now, you can't avoid that, me getting older, anyone getting older, you know. It'd be more dangerous me going to altitude as i got older. But I'd probably still have the push, to go back to Everest, something interesting or lucrative, <laughs> whatever. I'm a mountain guide, so I'd try and guide somebody on Everest, or you possibly, like I would guide him on Mont Blanc or the Matterhorn or i guide people in Scotland or the lakes. Just can't help it. I've been in the mountains, you know.
0: We're going to move shortly to some audience questions because we've got loads and it's brilliant but I just want to ask you um, one final question for me about your photography and filming because there's some absolutely beautiful photos in this book and you've done various documentaries. Why was it important to you to do those photographs and you know you were working with film rather than digital cameras for a lot of
2: it. Yeah I only went digital for Canton Jungle, the last one really and in fact I took uh, ordinary film shots on cameras as well. But on the summit, I had my first proper digital camera in the late 90s, but I think there were only one megapixel then, so that pulled me off cell phone. has more megapixels than that now. So, yeah, I've been a photographer since I was 11. I had my first camera then, and I started protesting my own black and white uh, when I was in the camera club at the talent Grammar School. So I've been a photographer for many years, so I just can't help myself. I had to take pictures. You know, some of my friends, when I was climbing with them, Usually on lower alpine style peaks, you know, I would take at least 10 rolls, 36 exposure on a film, and they would moan about how heavy that was, extra weight, and, and slow you down taking pictures as well. So, yeah, virtually every photo in the book has been scanned from transparency, you know, full slide. And, yeah, and the great scans are, um, yeah, some fantastic drum scans that they've done on it. You know, I used to carry 100 rolls sometimes on an expended base camp, which is a day pack full of film, a day pack of film, which would be x-rayed and cooked in the daytime in the heat, and frozen at night, and you had to look after it. You didn't know what you'd got till you got back, and it was processed, which I usually use a local lab. And so in, in a memory card now that's the size of your thumbnail, I can get the equivalent of 100 rolls. 100 rolls is 3,600 shots. Well, I can get that on a memory card now, and you can x-ray it if you wish. It doesn't damage it, does it? But make sure you don't lose it.
0: We're going to move to some questions from the audience. Did you use supplementary oxygen on your ascents?
2: Supplementary, that's the proper way to describe it rather than the Americans call it supplemental. I did on Everest, yeah, because it was uh, paid for by ITN. There was loads of it and I thought I'll give it a go then. And I, I like to try what, all the sort of things, you know, and uh, I have to say it did help you. Yeah, I think it keeps you warmer and I think it did help but there's a lot of extra weight and i carried all three bottles myself so i carried three bottles stashed one on the way up so i could get it on the way down but generally i wouldn't have used it if the previous time i tried everest i was going to do without a bottle of oxygen never used it on k2 so i don't feel i need to go back to everest and do it without oxygen you know obviously if i haven't out you can't say i haven't but i don't think it bothers me particularly k2 was more important anyway so I'm quite happy about using it at Everest. I carried it myself, anyway.
0: A next question from David. With your daughter Fiona, and then also your grandchildren, have you encouraged them to join you on the hills and get out and about?
2: Yes and no, I took Fiona out a few times when she was younger, and then she spent a lot of time with her mum as well, and I remember taking her once when she was about four or five up Pinnacle Ridge, a scramble in the Lake District. She did get a bit weepy on the exposed bit, she was a bit scared, but I put her under my arm like that, find with one arm, the arm was all in her, Never forget that. So I've taken her out a few times and I've taken my grandchildren out a little bit as well, but uh, I wouldn't encourage them to go and do the 8,000s. Would
0: you have any advice for someone setting out to do all 14?
2: Don't do it. You're going to die. <laughs> I don't know. It's a tricky thing. I mean, uh, NIMS just did it last year and it's all 14 in a year or seven months. Amazing. I mean, if you want to do it, do it. But it will take a lot of time and a lot of effort. You could end up getting frostbite. But uh, it's a great challenge to go for. I mean, things have changed a bit. You can get to them more easily and there's less anxiety about them. People know about them. Um, there are new routes to do on them. I mean, I did new routes on quite a lot of them. Sometimes the new route might just be a, 2,000 foot variation. That would be a mega route in Scotland, even in the Alps, you know. But anyway, the stacks of new routes we do done on the 8,000, if people want But it's worth worth going to try one if you want to test yourself. Not cheap, though, and dangerous.
0: Um, I think what really comes across in your book as well is how much you're inspired by other great mountaineers. And I wanted to ask, who were your heroes when you were growing up? Who were your mountaineering heroes?
2: Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, there was John Willans and Joe Brown, Joe Brown really was the, and a lot of people forget Joe was a great mountaineer. You know, he made the first ascent of Canton Jungle in 1955 with George Band, And then the next day there was Tony Strether and Norman Hardy. Uh, But Joe then concentrated more on rock climbing, I must admit. But there was a lot of the, um, when I was very young, there was a lot of the, German and Italian mountaineers that uh, impressed me as well. People like Walter Bernatti, who should have done the first ascent of K2, um, but uh, a couple of other Italians did, but that's another story. And then there was uh, Cassine as well, Riccardo Cassine, another gnarly Italian. And then there was the Germans as well, like Andel Heckmehr and Kaspar Borg and, and Harro, who did the first ascent of the North Face the Eiger in '38. You know, there was a lot of gnarly hard climbers around just before the Second World War and just after. And a lot of them were Europeans. And then you had your people like Joe Brown who came in as well.
0: You climbed with so many people as well that you really respected and really got to know. We've got a question from Carol. How did you cope with the loss of your friends and colleagues, um, especially Alison Hargreaves on K2?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's, sadly, sometimes friends died while you are on an expedition. Sometimes they died on a separate expedition. You know, Alison and I went out together on K2 in 95 and climbed together for the first 10 days, a couple of weeks, and then she decided to climb with an American and I climbed with an American. And, you know, my climbing partner dropped back and I got to the top alone, as I say, solo. Sadly, Alison got killed, you know, a couple of weeks later. Uh, That was pretty upsetting. I was back in Britain by then. thought I should maybe stay there, but I climbed the mountain. So I did the last sort of interview film with her and then I said, this is good luck and take care. And I came back to Britain and it did hit me hard. I got invited on and we climbed well i climbed it in july she was killed in early august i got invited by some french climbers to go to canch and jungle later that year and a couple of other expeditions. and i just couldn't go on another climb that year and i, I couldn't go away to the Himalayas again even though i had some invites for free expedition and ironically my two french friends that invited me to go to canch in the autumn of 95 they both got killed now sometimes I wonder if i'd gone would i have been killed or would i have prevented them getting killed you never know so alison got killed Two French friends killed and a couple of other British friends got killed. One got killed rock climbing. So I lost four or five climbing friends in '95. It was a pretty tragic year, yeah. I remember sometimes I would just have to walk off and have a cry and think, this isn't worth it, this is tragic. Yeah, what can you do? Life can be pretty upsetting at times with all sorts of things that you lose.
0: I mean, thank you for sharing that, with Alan. Um And I think your book is a, a really nice testament to a lot of people as well. And, yeah, all those memories of the people that you... You climbed with you know who are sadly no longer with us. Um, we've got another question from Bashan Having visited Nepal to walk the Annapurna Circuit, mm. um, and then twelve years ago to climb Island Peak, how important do you think tourist holidays are for helping the local economy?
2: Oh yeah, they're very important. That's what I always say about people who even make comments about you know restricting the numbers to Everest. Um, I mean, Everest is a huge amount. Normally nobody at Everest from the end of May till the following April. It's empty, you know. Uh, but then there's a lot of tourists, a lot of trekkers go to Everest Base Camp or Annapurna. All the Paul has really is tourism. And prior to that, and it still is mostly a subsistence economy where people grow food and eat it and barter with food and so on and so forth. One of the poorest countries in the world. And
0: um, What are you up to at the moment? I know that you know, COVID and lockdown has changed people's plans this year. But, yeah, what sort of things are you up to at the moment?
2: Lurking. That's what we do in the north. We lurk. I'm just lurking like everybody else. Lurking. Going to the hills and things. Going out on my bike quite often if I'm not in the hills. Luckily, there's not really anything to stop you going in the hills now, thankfully. First lockdown, you tricky not actually lived in the hills. And even then, they were saying you shouldn't really go in the hills. And Anyway, I think it's a bit more free to go in the hills now so I'm going in the hills quite a lot trying to keep sane but yeah things have changed a bit shall we say and uh, I think a lot of people have had change and
0: then um, do you have any big plans for when you can get out and about again kind of abroad or is it just a case of enjoying the no. mountains wherever they are
2: no just about enjoying them wherever you are you know yeah try to get out a bit of rock climbing in Spain when it's a bit damp here and things like that yeah but I, I love the British hills so I don't don't have a problem just climbing and walk in, in Umbria and Northern England, you know, not Yorkshire, and hopefully get up to Scotland.
0: I had um, one, one final question about, I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Kurt Diemberger, that the mountains are in his soul. Do you think they're in yours?
2: Yeah, they are really, yeah. Yeah, I've got to, got to get my fix in the hills for sure. Yeah, as I say, I think the were as a little boy, it was at where I always wanted to be, you know. Yeah, I just have to, being the fells, really. And I don't need to be big fells. The fells are okay. And there's some lovely little fells from Rosebury Topping to, to Dufton Pike to 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 Castle Crag. You know, to, you don't have to go up a, a, a big mountain. You know, you can do a mini mountain, which is what I would have thought there were when I was a kid, looking at Rosebury Topping Mountains. Hey, i bricks of people on top of it. Those of you that don't know Rosebury Topping, well, you just Google it these days, can't you? It's a mini mountain. North Yorkshire, not far from Middlesbrough, and so I just like doing ones like that, you know, as I say, it could be Arnison Crag or Castle Crag or Dufton Pike, some mini mountain, they're all in the north, but there are others like Stack Polly, which is a mini mountain, it's not even a Munro, so I just love being out, really, and in the hills, big mountains are great, you know, and that could be um, Shellac rather than Stack Polly or Sulvin, but yeah, you'll you'll find me in the hills, that's where I'll be.
0: Alan, thank you so much for joining us tonight and for sharing all of your stories and all your memories
2: it's safe everyone i should say as well you know try and enjoy yourselves i know it's difficult but hang on in there folks it's uh, yeah hang on in
1: that was alan hinks talking about his mountaineering journey and his book Eight Thousand meters climbing the world's highest mountains thanks so much to alan for joining us for our live event and sharing all of those wonderful memories and insights with us
0: You can find out about our upcoming monthly Cicerone live events at www.cicerone.co.uk forward slash
1: live. We'll also continue to share highlights of our future events on this podcast. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. Let us know what you think by leaving reviews on your podcast platform or by emailing us live at cicerone.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Visit cicerone.co.uk to find over 1,000 articles,
0: sign up to our newsletter, or buy one of our guidebooks. You can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or your favourite podcast provider.
1: We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, search for At Cicerone Press on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And you can also join our Facebook community group, Cicerone Connect, to connect with other outdoor enthusiasts. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.